I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to Psalm 33, uh, but before you do, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we ask now as we turn our attention to your word that you would help us, uh, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that our hearts would be open, that you would continue to grow us and change us for the sake of our good and your glory. Amen. Eight years ago, CNN reported on two atheists who wanted to rewrite the Ten Commandments. The article begins with the question, what if instead of climbing Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God, Moses instead turned around and asked the Israelites, hey guys, what do you think we should do? That was the idea behind the 10 non-commandments contest in which atheists were asked to offer modern alternatives to the famous Decalogue, a contest that offered $10,000 for some of the best ideas. It drew more than 2,800 submissions from 18 countries and 27 states. A team of 13 judges selected the 10 of the most sober and serious submissions, and they announced the winners, which were, to be quite honest, kind of a weird mix of statements about life and commandments <laughs> for not being commandments. The article goes on to summarize it this way. It says, there's nary a thou shalt among them. Nothing specifically about murder, stealing, or adultery. Although there is a version of the golden rule which presumably would cover those other crimes. If they lack faith in the divine, the atheist non-commandments display a robust faith in humankind. As if Silicon Valley had replaced Mount Sinai. Here are just four of the ten of the atheist non, ten non-commandments. Number two. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Or number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Or number nine, there is no right way to live. Except, of course, to believe this commandment. Number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. But it doesn't say according to who. <laughs> you know, many in our culture will promote the idea or similar ideas to these 10 non-commandments. Many will promote the idea that there are many, many different ways to live that will all lead to the same level of happiness or fulfillment or eternal destiny. But friends, there are but two ways to live. There are two ways to live. Now that might sound a bit reductionistic. Some people will undoubtedly bristle at the dualistic nature of such a claim. But the message of the Bible, the revelation of God to humans, 
shows that with regard to how humans go through life and interact with God, there are two ways to live. (laughs) And we could describe them with great nuance or we could simply say the first way is to live your own way. (laughs) And the second way is to live God's way. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus explains to us the implications of living these two ways. And so today, and for the next number of weeks, we enter into a journey of exploring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and its individual parts. It's important to think about the individual parts of the gospel because if you are missing some of those parts, you might not understand the whole gospel because there's a lot of confusion about what the core of this gospel message is in the world today. And even among us in the room, if I were to ask all of you to tell me what the gospel is, I would probably get a wide variety of nuances and different angles and different priorities and different types of answers. Maybe some of us feel like we know it very clearly. Others of us might feel like we have a little bit of fuzziness about how it all holds together. But the message of the Bible that's communicated in this gospel is a thread that is woven throughout its entirety And it points to us that there's two ways to live. And we so desperately want you to understand it, to know it for yourself. We so desperately want you to be able to live it. (laughs) Because in the truth of the gospel, you will have the most fulfilling life. I am 100% convinced. And we so desperately want you to be confident enough to talk about it with other people because there's a world around us that needs to know this good news. And so today we begin by exploring the gospel by looking at two simple truths from the Bible and directly applying it from a number of different passages. And the first truth, the first reality is this. God is the king. God is the king. From the very beginning of the world, God has been the ruler of the world. He is the ruler of all things in the world. He is the source of all things. The Bible tells us that the world was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. God is the source of life. And if he is the source, then it stands to reason that he is the ruler. If you make a batch of cookies at home and your kids come along and say, I'm going to take all those, you say, no, I'm the source of those cookies. I will tell you when you can have the cookies or not. On a much more grandiose level, God is the source of all things that we experience in this world, and therefore he is the ruler of all things. Psalm 33 illustrates this really well. If your Bible is open, look at it. The words will be on the screen behind me. The psalmist writes this about God. It says, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Righteous. 
Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make a melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by his breath of his mouth, all of their host. He gathers waters of the sea as a heap. And he puts it deep into the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Let's make a few observations. As the psalmist writes, there is a posture and some actions of God's people that are driven by who God is and what God has done. And so if you break it down into three questions, what are those actions and that posture of the people? Who is God and what has God done? Well, the actions, taking the first question, we see in this psalm are shouting for joy, giving thanks, singing to him, and playing music to him. Those are the actions of God's people when engaging him, and it's grounded in the realities of who he is and what he's done. And so, who is he? Well, verses 4 and 5 tell us. He is the upright faithful God who loves righteousness and justice and spreads his love through the world. That's a pretty comprehensive statement of many of the attributes of God. It's who he is. Upright, faithful God who loves righteousness and justice and spreads his love through the world. That's who God is. That's what he's like. And what has he done? Well, verses 6 and 7 tell us. What has God done? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He created. (laughs) What has God done? Well, he's done many things, but It starts with the fact that he created. He is loving and just and righteous and faithful and upright in all that he does in his creation. He is the Lord, a divine title and name which means the self-existent one. And if he is the Lord, it means that he is the king. And verse 9 says, he merely spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Friends, words have power. (laughs) You know this. 
Sometimes your words have more power than you realize or you intend them to have. Sometimes, especially when you're dealing with your kids, you wish your words had more power than they actually do. Blaise Pascal once wrote, cold words freeze people. Hot words scorch them, and bitter words make them bitter, and wrathful words make them wrathful. Kind words also produce their image on men's souls. And a beautiful image it is. They smooth and quiet and comfort the hearer. Your words have tremendous power to affect change in your life and in the life of other people around you. Words influence global treaties. Words initiate wars. Words can change an economy. And words can change a life. But with all of that power, none of your words are powerful enough to simply speak something into existence out of nothing. Only the king can do that. Think about that. Even begin to try to imagine what it would be like for you to breathe out a host of heavenly beings. That's exactly what God has done. Try to imagine the type of power that you would have if you could say but a word and something would materialize in front of you. You can't even begin to comprehend, but that is exactly what God has done. And so what is the posture of people who stand before such a powerful and holy God? whose words merely cause things to come into being. Verse 9 tells us, we stand in awe and we fear him. God is the creator. God is the king. God is the king. God is the king. You know, this is key to understanding the gospel and how to live. Because most of us function with this really funny dynamic when it comes to viewing God. And you might just simplify it by saying a little God or a big God. <laughs> most of us want a little God that we can minimize when we see something that we want that he forbids. <laughs> I want a little God in those moments. I don't want a big majestic king. But I do, most of us want a really big God when a pandemic hits <laughs> or a war is about to kick off. We want a powerful God then. We want a little God when life is comfortable because we don't want him to get in the way of that comfort, but we want a big God when personal crisis hits or when our self-sufficiency is revealed to be impotent. 
Friends, you will never fully appreciate the gospel if you minimize who God is and deny his transcendent being and his ruling over the world. God is the king. That's the picture of him in Revelation chapter 4. Look at it with me. Starting in verse 2, the apostle John writes that he was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Skipping down to verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, by the way, that's the king who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Worthy are you, for you created. God is the king. And that leads to the second reality. That our biggest problem is rebellion against the king. <laughs> Many of us would say that our biggest problem in life is other people. <laughs> We'd be wrong. Many of us would say our biggest problem in life is not having enough money. We'd be wrong. Many of us in life would say our biggest problem in life is our sin. And you'd be right. But what is your sin? Sin is indicative of a posture or actions that point to something beyond themselves. Sins point to rebellion. The essential nature of sin is a rejection of God as our ruler. It's a rejection of him as the king. We see this from the very beginning. A desire for self-determination, which can also be described as a desire for self-rule or a desire for me to become the king of my little existence. Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Her desire for elevated status to know what God knew was a moment in which she said, not with her words, but with her actions, I want to be the king. <laughs> and in this sense, we can all relate to Eve because we all struggle with the notion or the temptation toward self-determination in life. It's the axis point of a relationship with God and where sin enters in. We're tempted to rule our own lives and reject the rule of the king who is over us. 
The Bible is replete with example after example after example of how self-determination ultimately leads us toward a rejection of God and some wicked and terrible results. Think with me about the book of Judges. Some of you might be familiar with that book. Judges is a book in early Israeli history. The judges were military leaders who had some government um, roles as well. They were leaders of the people in Israel during that particular period. And we see account after account after account of the people in Israel, God's people, the people who were supposed to be set apart for a very particular purpose, the people who were supposed to be a reflection of the divine to the world. We see account after account of them just degrading morally moving into further rebellion against God as their king. And you might remember the resounding theme, the theme that describes what this looks like. It says it in the capstone verse of Judges 21-25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now that's interesting. They didn't try to do wrong, these people, necessarily. They did what was right according to how they would order the world. They did what was right in their own eyes. And as a result, they individually said, well, I want to be the king. And so if I was the king, I would order the world this way. And so you get a bunch of little kings running around, all ordering the world in different types of ways. And what happens? The whole thing devolves into wickedness and degradation and horror for the people. Even in trying to do right, they did wrong. And the same is true for me. And the same is true for you. Sometimes even in trying to do right, we end up doing wrong. We make an evaluation to order the world in a certain way that we think is right. We can't see the results in the moment, but when they come, we realize how wrong we actually were. Fast forward with me to the book of 1 Samuel. We see another picture of God's people, Israel, wanting to be like the other nations of the world instead of following the rule of God as their king, they want a physical king. And so it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you can flip there, look at the screen behind me. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel, Samuel's the prophet, at Ramah, And they said to him, behold, you are old. (laughs) Can we stop there for a second? That's usually not a good start. This is my first sermon back from sabbatical, so let me just rabbit trail a little bit to say, it's usually not a great start to begin with you, behold, you're old. You guys, are, have, you guys are so gracious with me in so many ways. Um, but one way that's not a great way to start with your pastor when he comes back from sabbatical is, behold, your beard has a lot more white than it did when I saw you three months ago. <laughs> it's, 
old. <laughs> you are old. <laughs> Getting older. But they say to Samuel, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them to show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God says they've rejected me from being the king over them. And we see in the scripture that this rejection or this rebellion against the king is universal in its scope. Isaiah 53 says that this desire for self-determination is something that infects us all. 53.6 says, all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Romans 3.23 intimates the same reality with some different language. All have fallen, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the rebellion in that regard against the king is universal in its scope. It's also incredibly personal in its scope. Pause with me for a moment and think and consider some of the ways you personally rebel against God as your king. Because I'm sure that there's probably some of us here that are thinking... Well, I don't feel like a rebel, and I'm certainly not involved in an insurrection. And so why are you coming in so hot on this whole sort of massive rebellion idea? I mean, sure, I make some mistakes, and yes, and even in my mistakes, I sin, but I don't view my sin as a rebellion against God. But here's the thing, if God is the source of all life, and that God is the king because he's the source of everything in the world. He's the king over everything in the world. And that king has ordered things in a particular way. And then he tells his creation how they are to live out in that particular order. Then every time you click on one of those little images on the internet and look at illicit material, or engage in sexual sin. You are saying with your actions, God's rule does not apply in that area of your life. Every time you move into a season where you greedily hoard your resources, your money, and you make those material resources the vehicle for your self-fulfillment, Instead of growing in generosity for the sake of God's kingdom, then you indicate that your kingdom is more important than his kingdom. <laughs> Kids, middle schoolers, high schoolers, every time you disobey your parents, you are saying or you are rebelling 
against the king who placed that authority over you. And parents, that's why we have to teach our kids the nature of authority because we don't want them to rebel against the king. And adults, every time you break the law, you are rebelling against the king who placed that authority over you. And every time I covet or I longingly look and ponder on what others have and I seek to try to gain those things for myself, I am saying that I'm not content with the king's provision for me. Our biggest problem is rebellion against the king. In fact, every time someone gossips or slanders, they display that they're not taking the, kid, the king's order seriously. We rebel. And 1 John indicates that even anger and hatred are some of the worst types of rebellion when it says in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Friends, I could go on and on and on. We could imagine all of the individual sins we have and that we commit and that we have propensity to. But here's the thing. You could evaluate all the sins in your life through the grid of God's rule and reign as the king and how those individual thoughts, words, or deeds are a form of rebellion against that king. God's ordered his creation. Life proceeds from him. He rules actively. He's told us how to live and to follow him. But our biggest problem is rebellion against the king. And so the question becomes, is there a way back? Is there a way back to the rule of the king? And when you look at the themes of the Bible, it's really interesting People want to be self-determining. It doesn't go so well. <laughs> this room is filled with people who were self-determining and figured out that it didn't go so well. Then the people want an earthly king. They shouldn't want an earthly king, a man king. They should want God as their king. But God allows them to have a man king. And as time goes on, these man kings never do for them what the God king can do. Never provide for them the way the God King can provide. And in fact, very often lead them to their very destruction. And so the question is, is there a way back to the God King? <laughs> and the answer, of course, is yes. Because in the coming of Jesus, we receive the man King that we've wanted <laughs> and the God King that we need. In the coming of Jesus, we see fully God and fully man, the king that we need. Galatians chapter four, verses four and five says it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law, i.e. the rebels who broke the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Revelation chapter one refers to Jesus and talks about him in this kingly type of language. It describes him in verse five and six, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, our rebellion by his blood, and make us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus offers the way back to live under the rule of God with all of its benefits. There are two ways to live. And the question remains, will you rebel against the king indefinitely or will you live under the rule of this king? In 1875, a British poet named William Ernest Henley published a short poem that many of you know. This poem expressed a way to cope with life's circumstances. It's called Invictus. And it ends with these famous last two lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In popular culture, those last two lines represent some kind of heroic, self-sufficient stand against evil and injustice without submitting to God. It's the ultimate expression of self-determination. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Journalist Daniel Hannan calls the poem a final and terrible act of defiance. The horror might indeed have awaited Henley, but he would go there on his own terms, leaving the spittle sliding down his master's face. For over 100 years, Henley's poem has inspired many, many people in the 1980s. The poem encouraged former South African President Nelson Mandela through the dark period of his life when he was in prison. Years later, Clint Eastwood used it to title his popular film about the South African rugby team. Sadly, it was a great influence to the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, who was responsible for the deaths of 168 men, women, and children and injuries to over 800 more. While he was in his execution chair, he scribbled the word Invictus on a piece of paper and handed it to the guards as his last words. 16 years after Henley first published Invictus, a British preacher named Charles Spurgeon offered another philosophy on life. It was June 7th, 1891, and it was the last sermon that Spurgeon would preach. He urged the people to submit to a better captain. He said, every person must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend on it. You will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or Savior. You will find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be hard masters. But if you wear the uniform of Christ, 
you will find him so meek and, lovely and lowly of heart and you will find rest unto your souls. If you could see our captain, you would go down on your knees and beg him to let you enter the ranks of those who follow him. It is heaven to serve Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would greatly impress upon us your kingly majesty. That in our temptation and in the constant cultural narrative around us that minimizes who you are, that these people right here today would be people who see and know and feel in the depths of our soul that you are the king. Father, we pray that you would allow us to feel the weight of rebellion that our sin constitutes, rebellion against you as the king, and that you would do that convicting work by your spirit even now. And Father, we ask finally that you would give us great hope and joy because of the Lord Jesus who allows us to come back and live under the rule of you as the king. May we be compelled by it, motivated by it, convicted in it. May it drive our actions in the days ahead, we pray. In his mighty name, amen.